David, Fox just signed a deal with the WWE to add wrestling to their network for $1 billion. Wow. What I want to know is, how do you think Vince McMahon should spend his money? <laughs> um, Hi, guys. <laughs> it's Bill Simmons. Hey, Bill. You remember the million dollar man and the million dollar belt? Yeah. Could we do a billion dollar belt? A billion dollar belt. Yeah, it would be just like the million dollar belt, but maybe like like 10 times bigger. What about an old fashioned money bin? You mean like Scrooge McDuck? Yeah. You could go swimming in it? Yeah. I guess my big question is what is the <laughs> currency in the money bin? Is it Sacagawea dollars? <laughs> or like, yeah, it would have to be quarters. I, mean, I know that you would probably die is trying to swim in any pile of coins, but it feels like gold <laughs> is the lightest. Am I crazy now? Like, is gold? The- you think gold <laughs> is the most swimmable coin? I don't know. Wait, this is gonna be the penny, right? This is the real tragedy of aging: is that you can never get afford your money bins until you're too old and frail to swim in it. <laughs> <laughs> right, or the tragedy of not being rich in the Disney cartoon universe, <laughs> yes. as opposed to real life. More on that one. Other important stuff. This is the press box on the Ringer Podcast Network. The Press Box is the media podcast where you're not allowed to call the White House leakers cowards and traitors and also claim that they don't exist. We are Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker of The Ringer. Some articles for you to check out from our Ringer universe. Uh, coverage of the week's number one movie, Deadpool, featuring columns by Sean Fennessy and Micah Peters and our trademark Ringer exit survey. Uh, read Ben Lindbergh on one of the nerdiest, and I say that admiringly, Star Wars sub- subculture still alive in the world. And finally, our coverage of the rapidly approaching 2018 NBA draft, including Kevin O'Connor on the Combine and John Gonzalez on Texas's very own Mo Bamba. David, I got three topics for you today. First, Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the election turned one year old last week. We relive the media's party of the century. Second, why did cable news hosts lose their ever-loving minds for the royal wedding this weekend? And finally, Alex Rodriguez has gone from PED cheat to one of the MVPs of ESPN, we examine the repackaging of A-Rod. Plus, as always, our overworked Twitter joke of the week. But first, David, a topic I'd like to call, you say it's the Robert Mueller investigation's birthday. It's my birthday too, yeah. Keep going. The media's gonna set some unsustainable traffic benchmarks. I'll stop now. On May 17, 2017, Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, appointed Robert Mueller to investigate possible Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. Remember when we we could say possible interference in the 2016 presidential election? A couple of things we should explore here about the media coverage of the story, which is fair to say taken up the bulk of the national section of every newspaper in the country for the Mm -hmm. last year, I think. I guess one thing that's funny is I was thinking about the two contradictory streams of information. On the one hand, blockbuster New York Times story. Sure. On the other hand, Trump tweet, (laughs) calling it a a witch hunt or just sort of throwing up a smoke screen and going, hey, look over there, Mm -hmm. which is incredible because, you know, we can go back to Nixon and find Ron Ziegler, like, you know, denying every new, you know, bit of news in Watergate. Right. But of course, he didn't have a giant platform to do it in the same way that Trump's Twitter feed did. And that's, I think, been one of the streets like the first it's like we've experienced a political scandal in a completely different way. Does that make sense? Yeah. 
I mean, I think one of the things that's worth looking at is that we've kind of tried to define this in terms of Watergate over the span of the year. And yeah. I think especially from like the liberal side that we have, um, like Slate has a podcast, Slow Burn, that's incredibly good. Um, mm -hmm. Leon, who's the host of it, is a, an old friend from our New York days. Certainly um, is. But uh, I think there's a, there's, I mean, there's a, I mean, not, this, this is to say nothing about the podcast. It's fantastic. But the, but the, the way that I think that the liberals have sort of tried to um, solve their anxiety by by uh, constantly reminding themselves of the fact that the Watergate investigation took a really long time and it wasn't just to meet like, you know, someone didn't just flip the lights on and the next day Nixon resigned. Totally. Um, but I think that there's it's impossible to overstate the distance between these two eras, just like what you were saying. You know, I mean, it's it's so it's such a different time and place. And just the way that I mean, it, you know, in the Nixon era, the vast majority of people got their news from a very, very limited number of sources. You know, so much of America was watching the nightly news on a network. And right now, um, there's no telling where even the I mean, people who were like the diehard network news viewers of 10 years ago might be spending all their time on Breitbart or Facebook or, you know, wherever else getting their getting just their daily news input. So um, whether you're believing well, even if The New York Times and Trump are the two poles of the of, of, you know, the conversation that's going on right now, the filters that those are going through before they get to most most consumers is, uh, you know, it's, it's a totally different world. That's a great point. And I think I think we we forget now because we're so spoiled in this media ages. You know, when Watergate was going on, most people weren't reading The Washington Post. Mm -hmm. you, you couldn't just get it on your magic Internet machine. Yeah. You know, you'd wait for your local paper to reprint the stories, which they often did, or wire service to summarize the findings. Or they'd go through the filter of Walter Cronkite, right? Absolutely. Who would talk about them, but wouldn't, you know, lay them out in such detail that you could kind of like, you know, you'd be getting the very, very condensed version of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and when when you're getting a condensed version by a trusted source, when they're just like, all right, that's the end of the game. It's time to go home. Then you can just kind of take it for granted that that's true. You know? Oh, totally. This is like when we talk about the two different news feeds, this this struck out to me this weekend. We had the, on the one hand, this blockbuster New York Times story uh, on Saturday about a meeting with Donald Trump Jr., Eric Prince, Joel Zamael, and George Nader at Trump Tower. Mm -hmm. As they said, uh, Zamael's firm employed several Israeli former intelligence officers and had already drawn up a multi-million dollar proposal for a social media manipulation effort to help elect Mr. Trump. Mm -hmm. One of the many amazing sentences in that story. And then on the same hand, you have Trump tweeting, the witch hunt finds no collusion with Russia. So now they're looking at the rest of the world. Oh, great. Exclamation point. Yeah. Right. Just the distance between those two things. Another thing, and this was in this, Garrett Graft did an interesting piece in Wired about the one-year anniversary of the Mueller investigation. And this point he made is he said, thus far we've watched the Mueller investigation through the public equivalent of a soda straw, seeing only bits and pieces of what is clearly a sprawling effort. Which brings me back not to Watergate, but to Ken Starr, something we lived through, and Monica Lewinsky and mm -hmm. Bill Clinton. That, that investigation leaked like a sieve. Yeah. I mean, it just leaked all the time. Mueller does not, apparently. So we get these like tantalizing glimpses because, you know, the media re-interviews Trumpites that he's interviewed. They break their own, you know, they, they catch up with them. And another thing Graf points out is that whenever we learn something, we always find out later that Mueller had learned about it six months earlier. Yeah. So we're like trailing behind uh, the special counsel, but also seeing this tiny little interesting but incomplete view of it. Which I think is a fascinating feature of this this whole thing too. Yeah, I think that that's definitely true. Um, I think the, I mean I, I think the question that remains is that is whether or not the way that 
the Mueller investigation has has laudably kept mum on most of on all this information, whether or not that's actually functional in 2018. Because by the time, no matter how deep and broad his pool of of information and facts is, when he when the report is finally released, when charges are finally filed, has a year or eighteen months or two years, whenever it finally happens, of Donald Trump swinging back on Twitter, going to have done enough to 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 null the blow. Yeah, you know, I'm, I mean, it's like it's it's actively being politicized, whether or not Mueller wants it to be. Yeah, and as I think some people pointed out, you know, it's like this last week. It's it's not so much whether Mueller comes up with the goods. It's like who is running the House of Representatives, right? That's sure. Trump's fate, right? At the end of the day, because it's not. We've seen that the Republican House doesn't have any interest in this, or in Devin Nunes's case is. Uh, you know, ac- actually wants to interfere with the investigation, right? There was a story this last week that they were worried that Republican House members were trying to get access to the files so they could yeah. muddy yeah, the waters, yeah. right? So that's another that's another sort of thing about this. I think another one that uh, came out in Grass Piece that was fascinating to me is just all the things that the Mueller investigation has done. And this is th- these are things that have already happened. We talk about we talk about the indictments, right? Mm-hmm. A few guilty pleas. It has led to the withdrawal of the president's nominee to be ambassador to Singapore, as well as withdrawal of a former senior campaign aide nominated to one of the top jobs in the Department of Agriculture, to the downgrading of Jared Kushner's security clearance. Like all but the last one of those things I'd just completely forgotten already. Yeah. Because they've been such, again, and this has now become like a cliche in Trump land, but in any other presidency, this would have dominated the news. Remember when, you remember the, the level of controversy or at least like strum and drong or whatever on the liberal side between about Dick Cheney and his Halliburton ties? Yeah. Sure. And now and now we have Eric Prince of Blackwater, given not the acting. I mean, it's changed its name. Founder and sold, of Blackwater. The founder of Blackwater, but still very still a, a functioning still a businessman and who knows what his ties are. Is working as like a fixer for the Donald Trump and the, the Trump candidacy, the presidential campaign. I know, like setting up meetings and stuff. I mean, just why is it? It's not that like that's necessarily good or bad, but how much stuff has to be going on that like the most liberal <laughs> let's, among let's us? Let's it's probably bad. Yeah, but like, but how? But like the fact that like there aren't liberals protesting in the street that 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 a you know quote unquote warmonger like Eric Prince is that involved with the Trump campaign and nobody knew about it. You know? I mean, oh, absolutely right. <laughs> And Trump, I think Jonathan Chait made this point today, but John, Trump has said like in that tweet, oh, you know, those, they've now moved on to other parts of the globe. This is getting ridiculous. And it's like, no, 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 that's not necessarily exculpatory. <laughs> that just means that there, there are potentially more scandals involving other continents. Yeah, right. that doesn't mean as Jay pointed out, that doesn't mean you didn't do the you didn't you didn't do the Russia thing. Yeah, if your defense is like, listen, if you look at every country in the world, you're gonna find something yeah. I did wrong. It's like like well, that's really? not yeah, that's not much of a defense. <laughs> Let's keep going then. Um, another thing you and I've talked about offline that's kind of fascinating is the way this, and I think it's partially because that partial view we're talking about is the way this controversy has sort of encouraged the media to print conspiracy theories about oh, what's yeah, going on yeah. here. Now, there's a couple of different veins of this, right, that I don't want to tangle up. One is the Wall Street Journal op-ed page conspiracy theory. Yes. Most recent of which was the May 17 editorial by Kimberly Strassel called Was the Trump Campaign Set Up? Mm-hmm. Quotes around set up. And this is, I think, a pretty recognizable kind of strain of right-wing conspiracy, right? These are these are the homies who brought you was Vince Foster murdered, right? This, we 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 know we know what this product is. Though yes. now Trump is sort of literally quoting from it. But the one that interested me was New York Magazine, this professor Paul Campos, which he took this bizarre semi-connected story where Republican fundraiser Elliot Broidy 
paid off a Playboy playmate through Cohen through, through Cohen, yeah, who'd become pregnant. The, the playmate had become the, pregnant, yeah, <laughs> yeah, not Cohen or Brody, yes. And Compost laid out a theory that it was Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, a rather compelling theory, <laughs> extremely compelling theory, <laughs> not Brody, who, conjectural, yeah. who is doing all this. Yes, and it is incredibly convincing. But you sent me a note, and I thought this was right. It's like, would New York Magazine have printed this in another time? No, I mean, I think that it's, I think it's all, it, if not, if it doesn't directly spin out of the of BuzzFeed publishing the the Steele dossier, then it's it it spins out of the weird place we are in history that that was that they decided to do that. Mm. Um, yes. I think that's right. I think that, you know, we we weren't doing a podcast when the Steele dossier came out, obviously, but I think that in very broad strokes, there are two kind of conflicting correct things, right? On the one hand, it's like, this is information that's out there. We are in a full disclosure era. Um, You know, the the idea that the Washington elite should have access to this, but the average human, average person doesn't is crazy. Yes, that is true. On the other hand, uh, is if we don't publish it, someone else will an organizing philosophy for how to run your magazine. I mean, it's all very strange. Yeah, I was going to say through through time, through journalism history, probably yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, but is that I mean, <laughs> and, to... and, and the and and whether or not, and even if you think they made the right call, they had you know Buzzfeed suffered from making the right call, right? I mean, so, to, to some extent. I mean, there. I think did that, they? Yeah, I mean, the the I think at least for you know half of America, they don't would never trust them again. Um, they definitely have a bad reputation, you know, on the right now. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, I don't, that might've been unavoidable. I just think it's, I think that's interesting, but I think you're right. It all comes from this idea of the information needs to be free. Yeah. And why does the New York times get to know this plus people in Congress? Why do mm-hmm. they get to know this? But the American public doesn't get sure. to know this. If and we you, know this. I mean, you and I experience this on a regular, I mean, on a semi-regular basis that you'll get a text message from somebody who's works for the times or, or the, you know, their, their girlfriend or boyfriend is a reporter and they'll say, oh, by the way, this rumor that's out there is 100% true. Everybody's trying to source it. They just can't quite do it yet. You uh-huh. know, so there is a so a huge, this cloud of information. Yeah, that's that like we heard about like, Harvey Weinstein yeah, months before exactly. it happened. Uh, and the ones, people that followed Weinstein, we uh, there was the checklist of all the names that were about to come off and about 90% of them proved to be accurate yeah. or that they were going to, you know, they're in the line of fire. Now let's list the other 10. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um but I think that specifically to this New York Magazine piece, what you see is, is very – it's like when you when you have a story that you believe with every bit of you to be true or – and you know – I mean who knows what the sourcing was on this, but you know it feels sort of like a story that you know to be true, but mm-hmm. you can't pin it down in the strict journalist, journalistic you know, method that you go out there and you say, let me just, let me just propagate a couple of theories on the internet. And by doing so, you kind of take the bullet, but then everybody else is free to talk about it because it's been published. Yes. Even even though it's a theory, it's been published in the, in New York Magazine. That's right. No, that's right. It becomes a thing. But that it works both ways. I mean, the way that we we've we've talked before about how you know a crazy conspiracy theory can can grow from a 4chan meme to a gateway pundit post to something, then Breitbart picks it up, then Fox News asks an open question about the subject, and the next thing you know, the president's tweeting about it or something. You know, I mean, it, there, there's, you know, the, these these sort of conspiracy theories can come up from all corners. All it takes is someone willing to assume responsibility. Hey, just asking a question here, and then someone else, and then step two is someone saying, 
oh yeah, this person asked a question. Now what do we know about it? You know, and and that's it's it's an interesting it's an interesting piece of the sort of Trump era media world. I think that's right, and I think what's your point, the point you make about the media changing the way, and it's like Trump is the other inextricable part of this mm-hmm. because one is what could New York Magazine public possibly publish about Trump in terms of a negative article about Trump that would turn off its readers at this point. Oh, like nothing. almost nothing, right? Yeah. They might have to worry about that in another era, in Reagan, you know, stuff like that, right? Even if most of their readers were pretty happy to read, sure. you know, those kind of stories. But the other thing is like Trump is the, is the president who we all believe could be could have done this, right? Like like all we've learned over the last year plus is that maybe he did do this. Maybe this wild conspiracy theory is true. Yeah. I mean, that to me is the the lesson of the Mueller investigation, right? Is that like, you know, the ultimate the ultimate prize that a lot of people are after, which is that, you know, Russian the Russian government and Trump, you know, collaborated, mm-hmm. right, in 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 to monkey around with the election has not been not been proven publicly yet. But lots of other things have, right? right. So it makes conspiracy theories seem like, oh, well, maybe there's something to this. Sure. The other thing was true. You know, why wouldn't this be true? Yeah. I mean, there's also sort of mutually assured lack of decorum that goes on with these things, because, I mean, you talked about Reagan. I mean, basically in any previous presidency, if there were just the insinuation that the president's personal lawyer had paid off a pregnant Playboy bunny, that the presidency would be over. Right. (laughs) I think so. Yes. And we're not we're not an exception. We're not in that world. We're not in that world anymore. And so I think that a lot of would just resign. I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think that I think that there's I mean, and we're not in that world anymore. And I think that, you know, a lot of outlets are sort of making hay with that. It's like, well, if it doesn't matter anymore, then why should we care? I remember when uh, Greg Howard wrote that big Keith Olbermann profile in The New York Times magazine. He had a line in there and I'm butchering it because it's not in front of me, but something like that Olbermann, because he was talking about Russia and talking about, you know, these various theories Mm -hmm. was somehow out of step with where the public was, you know, and I'm almost like, it seems to me that that's exactly in step, in step where the public is. And that's where everybody is more so now maybe than then. But like if any presidency and if any media moment has, you know, would, 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 would favor that kind of treatment. Yeah. It'd be this one. Sure. It'd be this one. Absolutely. All right, David, now time for our overworked Twitter joke of the week, where we celebrated the gags that were so obvious that all of media Twitter made them at exactly the same time. On Saturday, yes. David, deranged portions of America got up at 4 a.m. to watch the royal wedding between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. It was an overworked Twitter joke to say, <laughs> I wouldn't even wake up at 4 a.m. for my own wedding. <laughs> Can you believe how much dad humor the royal wedding has sloughed off? Remember when we had the guess my invitation got lost in the mail a couple <laughs> months ago? Do yeah. You, do you think we're going to have to wait for uh, Tim Allen's Fox show to bring dad humor back now that we have a little bit of a lull? As a relative newcomer to dad humor myself, I've, I think my the most stunning <laughs> revelation is that like dad humor doesn't ever work in real life, but it basically is indistinguishable from weird Twitter. Oh yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a good point. They I, are. They I think are, that humor is out there thriving under different names. That's via uh, Jimmy Berg. Also, our pal Ryland Grant sends over a late-breaking, overworked Twitter joke, which is people seeing George Clooney in the audience, would talking about how it was a ocean style, Ocean's <laughs> Eleven style plot to rip off the crown jewels while the wedding was happening. <laughs> As uh, Dave Itzkoff. Uh, several of the yeah. people tweeted this, thanks to Ryland, as always. All right, David, on Sunday, we saw yet another chapter in one of the crazier sports stories of recent memory. The expansion Las Vegas Golden Knights made it to the Stanley Cup Finals in their first year of existence. 
It was an overworked Twitter joke to tweet. Good for all those long-suffering Golden Knights fans. <laughs> they deserved it. This was tweeted by Man, a ton funny. of sports writers to which a Twitter account called Las Vegas Locally countered, quote, Vegas is a 113-year-old city that wasn't allowed to have a pro sports team for the first 112 years. Hashtag shut the fuck up. Anyway, that's the Washington Post's Des Byler. And finally... This via reporter Peter Wilson last Wednesday, David, a Pittsburgh TV anchor named Ken Rice uh, tweeted video of a dumpster, a dumpster slowly floating down a flooded street in Pittsburgh. Now, listeners, I am going to show David footage of the dumpster. <laughs> right. Okay, I'm Got seeing it, a dumpster right? floating down the street. All right. All right, to which many people grabbed that video and tweeted. Ben Roethlisberger already on his way to OTAs. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't actually get this one. Credit to that, whoever Yeah, very joke. funny. But also a lot of Pittsburgh hockey fans refer to the dumpster as Washington Capitals right winger Tom Wilson, who, and I hope I'm getting this right, had a vicious hit in the playoffs that broke the jaw and concussed the Penguins' Zach Aston Reese. I don't speak hockey, but I think you and I are both generally in favor of sports hatred. So if you compared the floating dumpster to Ben Roethlisberger or Tom Wilson, congratulations. You made <laughs> the overworked Twitter joke of the week. All right, before talking about the royal wedding, David, let's pause for this brief commercial interruption. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I wanted to tell you about the revamped Ringer NBA show podcast. We are Monday through Friday on Mondays. John Gonzalez hosts Heat Check. Bounce around, talk to a bunch of different Ringer staffers about the weekend that was and what's coming up on Tuesdays. Chris Vernon and Kevin O'Connor, America's favorite couple. On Wednesdays, Sources Say with Chris Ryan and Julia Lippman, and maybe some interview podcasts as well. And then Thursdays, Group Chat, Chris Ryan, a rotating cast of Ringer staffers. We even put this on YouTube too. And then Friday, Draft Class, Kevin O'Connor, Jonathan Charks, sometimes Danny Chow, talking about the 2018 NBA draft, mock stuff, who's rising, who's falling, who's going to do what. You get this every day, all the way through the playoffs, the draft, and even free agency, five days a week. The Ringer NBA Show. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our second topic, David, I'd like to call the Princess Bride. We have these events these days where you look at Twitter and you suddenly realize, oh my God, we've collectively decided we're all in on this, right? Right. It's time for hyper-ironic humor. We are all going to pay attention to this. Yes. One of those events was the royal wedding Saturday morning, which had 29 million viewers wow. in America and I believe 2 billion worldwide. Can we start by listening to MSNBC anchors Stephanie Rule and Katie Turr waving madly at the royal carriage? There is one flower for each country and the California poppy, which is the state flower from, of course, Megan's home state. So the message today is love, inclusion and happiness. It's it's here. They are right here. Megan, we love you. Safe to say that is not how Katie Turr covers Donald Trump. How did they get that audio of you and me on Saturday? That's really <laughs> yeah, awkward. That's amazing. The way I want to go 
here, David, is what is the appeal in America of the royal wedding here in 2018? Oh, man. First of all, uh, I was looking uh, to find a movie to go see on Saturday. On Friday, I was looking at the movie times the following day and mm. realized that the that the uh, the multiplex in downtown LA was showing the royal wedding from 10 a.m. to noon. <laughs> a replay. Yeah. Or 10 a.m. to maybe later than that. It was a 10 a.m. showing. So I guess like that, you know, eight hours delayed, but where you can go and watch on the big screen. I would love to know who was in that in that showing. I know. If I don't know. Who was motivated. dedicated enough to go to the movie theater, but not dedicated enough to just wake up early and watch on television. Well, sometimes some things are better on the big screen. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> really honors the special on. effects. You, we got Han Solo coming out this weekend. You know, yeah. it's a big screen experience. Um, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, we have some dedicated um, royal watchers on staff here at The Ringer. We do. Uh, Amanda Dobbins, um, above all, also the Juliet Littman, her podcast partner on Jam Session, is giving her um, a run for her money. Um, it's I, I guess my the, the the experiment I was pl- I was doing with myself was if they if they didn't already work for the ringer would we have found someone or would we have forced someone to get invested in the royal wedding probably I think so I don't think we would have hired a full time royal watcher just for the event but you know there would have been a I mean we would have had someone blogging about it probably right I think so but um, but and but, Kate Howell by the way has been doing a stellar job of that for us but that's what I find so fascinating about all these things are they as content providers. Do we all see something like this on the calendar and get excited because we know that's going to deliver the eyeballs? Yeah. Or do people actually care and then the content providers sort of follow? I can never quite untangle that with all this stuff. It's a circular thing. There's not a beginning or an end, I don't think, to it. It's all the chicken and the egg of, of you know, media in, in current year. Um, but I do think that there is a... I mean, I have so many, so many thoughts about so many thoughts about the royal wedding. <laughs> I do think that one of the things that really draws us to it, and you can find a, there are a lot of points of entrance to the American fascination with the royal family. But one of the one of the things that that draws us to it is the consistency, right? And you're asking about like how do they, you know, do we? Why are people interested in it? Like, how do we know? Are we interested in it just because someone told us we're interested in it? I mean. Listen, this is a never-ending reality show, but part of it is that it's really never-ending. It goes on and on. You know, we are going to follow th- this. The royal family doesn't get canceled in 2019 because Fox moves to a different format. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, this is always going to be a part of our lives, and um, you know, we're fascinated with it for a lot of reasons. I and mean, part of it's we are, you know, the, the the country that we live in is a, you know, offspring of the UK. I mean, of, of Great Britain. Um, they. The royal royalty in general will always be part of our culture, America or not. It's this is fairy tale culture. This is the last. Listen, I mean, if if the king of if if the if the if the rulers of Egypt were still walking around in golden headdresses and like shirtless in front of the great pyramids, we would be just as captivated by their weddings too. Yes, there is this there is old fashioned pomp <laughs> I and can circumstance. Say yes, yeah, I would right? watch that on television. Um, and, the, and and they you know so the, so there's definitely that part of it, but then. I mean, there is something refreshing about as as much as we pride as we in America pride ourselves on you know this kind of Republican uh, you know Democratic style government. Um, there's something refreshing about not, especially right now, about not having a choice. You know, the vo- voting and the, like the the anxieties and the anger and the and the dissent with our fellow Americans that comes from it is one of the central tensions of our lives right now, right? These people are just propped up there and they get it because they're born and they're married, they marry into it. We don't have any choice over the whole thing. And this was what 
Bar- Barack Obama said when he met with uh, who was he? What, was he meeting with Prince William uh, in 2015? He said it's fair to say the American people are quite fond of the royal family. They they like them much better than their own politicians. Of course they do. Politicians have terrible approval ratings. Yeah. As soon as you get elected, it's just the numbers just just go down. <laughs> well, and it's weird in England too, right? Because you have the the royal family on the one hand, then you have Brexit on the other hand, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the work of normal politicians and the and the unruly populace, right? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty a lot, sure the royals weren't didn't want to leave the EU. A lot of the a lot, I mean, you a lot of the people who've written about this subject will say it's funny because America Americans seem to have a more unified, positive opinion of the of the monarchy than than members of the UK do, of citizens of the UK, because it's all, because America in America we're able to look at it through kind of rose colored colored glasses, you know, and 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 because we you know fought a war and left. <laughs> Uh, I mean, and, and, you know, separated from them, we don't have the same association that a lot of the rest of the parts of the world do with, you know, Britain being a, um, oppressor, oppressor. Yeah. That's the right word. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. Yeah. To, to unpack a couple of things there that I think are really interesting. One is you're right. The timelessness of it. You know what it reminds me of is CBS's master's coverage. Yes. It really is a tradition unlike any other. Yeah. You know, there's something about, you know, both of those telecasts, both the Masters and the Royal Wedding are sold as this kind of timeless thing, this genteel thing. This thing is hemmed in by tradition. You know, this the the coach will do this. This person will say this. These people will be lined up here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think there's something in our turbulent world that that appeals to people, uh, yeah. which appeals to people for sure. Right? I think that that's definitely true. And there's a weird way, though, in, in which it's not it's not always just a respite from the current from the from the world outside and a lot of just almost randomly the royal family seems to have sort of kept up with our culture as as retrograde as it is in so many ways you know and like we had prince charles and diana in 1981 diana was the closest thing the monarchy was ever going to get to like a yeah. you know a, a cindy lopper figure you know she was just like a like a, liber- <laughs> a liberated woman or perceived as such in a lot of ways you know and then I think Thank there was clarifying the yeah. link with Cindy Lauper. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about it. Like, Wait a uh, second. And then you know, Prince William and and Catherine were definitely like a. I think a sort of return to the. I mean, a sort of return to, um, you know, a, a sort of fairy tale vision in 2011. But I think that yeah, Meg, oh, but, sure. but Meghan Markle is you know is a revolutionary figure in a lot of ways and fits in really perfectly in, in 2018. And I think and and Harry is Harry is the ideal you know the perfect mate for her in a lot of ways. He's always been seen as sort of the rebel of the family. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, it is truly the American fairy, like American woman marries prince, right? That is, that is, that's the, the, movie the best st- part about that's the movie story. Well, right? the best part about it is that everybody is, is that so many people now are familiar with King Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson from, from watching the crown on Netflix. Like the previous time that a, that a British Royal tried to marry a, uh, an American, she was, she was a divorcee. Although I guess that mattered probably a lot more than that. It might matter now, but the, um, but like we have our frame of reference from Netflix, but that that also yeah. speaks to our fascination with the royal with with you know yeah. with the royals because there's a Netflix show that none of us wanted to watch that we're all obsessed with now that we all can't we all can't stop talking about season three. The royal wedding had a peg. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's huge. A news peg. It absolutely did. There was there are a couple of funny things before we get out of here that I found online that were that were worth reading. Back in 2015, Nick Bryant wrote a BBC review for a Broadway play called King Charles III. That was a speculative Shakespeare style. <laughs> Pick, uh, play about about Prince Charles being elevated to the monarchy, and gotcha. there's a lot of really good, incisive looks pre pre twenty eighteen about how we, you know, how how Americans uh, kind of glorify the crown. 
Um, but one last thing, um, there was a, Huff, a Huffington Post piece that I, I just that was published recently that I just have to read out loud from. Please. It says, however you consume royal media, it's important to keep that fascination healthy. This is a quote. Quote, doing it, doing it <laughs> as a hobby is okay. Uh, this is an expert named Rockwell. I totally missed the, the, uh, the context. But being obsessed to the point that you were spending a lot of time not living your own life is harmful. <laughs> <laughs> Too late, yeah. says America. Yeah. I, I, I would also add two other things. One is just the, there's just generally a good news story, right? An uncomplicated good news story, which is funny, by the way. This is for Brian Stelter's evening uh, newsletter <laughs> that David Muir, who was the anchor of the ABC Evening News, says, Good evening from Windsor tonight, he said on Friday newscast, and then immediately has to go to the school shooting in Texas Ugh. because, oh, we came over to cover the fairy tale wedding, and guess what? Somebody shot up a school and killed a bunch of kids. Oh, man. So that was kind of, you know, kind of brought that home a little bit. Diana, by the way, still a global superstar, even in death. These are her kids, right? Do not do not discount the power, the enduring power, especially among people on the other side of 50 and 60 of Diana. Yeah. I mean, she was huge. Absolutely. It is just, I mean, it's so hard to explain to people how big she was in the 80s and then later oh. into the 90s. The other thing, a little bit separate from Royals' fascination, is just, I would say, general Anglophilia in America, which kind of goes up and down, uh -huh. right? I mean, the 80s, like, how'd you express that in the 80s? It was die. It was probably masterpiece theater, mm -hmm. right? Ricky, sure. Ricky Jervis probably later <laughs> became a, either a symptom or a Down Abbey had a, had a huge moment. Down Abbey's yeah. another really good one, right? And I almost feel like what post Down Abbey, are we, are we at a low, uh, a mini trough of Anglophilia? Thanks to chilly relations from uh, Trump at all. Like, what am, what am I missing? Are we, is there? I don't, are we sure that Trump isn't a symptom of Anglophilia though? Because he's a part, he, he is a version of New York that like, I mean, he he's on, I mean, he's not quite John Kerry, but he like, he's that Northeastern old money sort of vibe that, I mean, I think that's what people see in him. Yeah. He's obviously very different than that. Certainly very different than that that New England, I speak half in a British accent anyway, but like, I don't know. I don't know. It'd be, it'd be interesting. He, he does own the golf course in Scotland. Yeah. So maybe he is. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just hypothesizing now. Us, I feel we're a little overdue for our next uh, movie that's in the what we call the accidental royalty genre. <laughs> so like the Princess Diaries would be one. King Ralph uh, from our childhood, like, guess what? I'm the king. Guess uh, what? I'm the, I'm the princess. I had no idea. This is, well, we're not going to get that, but we're going to get reality shows with Meghan Markle's family for the rest of our lives. Yeah. It's going to be, it's going to, it's going to be like the crown prince of Coral Gables, Florida or something, you know, and it's just going to be, it's going to be like her, like her Coral Gables, her cousin on a hammock, you know, with a shotgun or something. And that's going to be, yeah, we're going to have that for the rest of our lives. I know this is a safe space, so I can confess this, but we often confess like, are you, did you know this was still a thing? I, I only vaguely knew what Suits was. I'm going to be oh. totally honest. Listen, I just, I didn't a, really know. As a diehard consumer of, uh, of Middlebrow TV and, you know, everything on the USA Network, thanks to WWE. Um, I was very familiar with suits. <laughs> My mom was into suits. Uh, yeah, I have, I have a lot of opinions on suits. I guess what surprised me more than anything, even as someone who has consumed suits, is that the entire cast of suits was were just presumed invitees to the wedding. Yeah. Like, I love everybody at the ringer. I don't know that if I married a royal that everybody here would be on the would be on the invitation list. All right, David, moving on a segment I'd like to call the repackaging of A-Rod. Last week at ESPN's Upfront, I was struck by the central role played by Alex Rodriguez, 
not just because A-Rod is double dipping with ESPN on Sunday Night Baseball and Fox on postseason baseball, but because A-Rod. I don't have a moral qualm with A-Rod's PED stuff here, but it's worth, I think, taking a moment to appreciate just how effectively and completely A-Rod has been repackaged to be the face of two networks after essentially leaving baseball in disgrace. Can I point you to the moment where this flipped for him? ESPN Magazine, 2015. Oh, yeah. J.R. Moringer's piece about A-Rod. I just, I think that completely changed the the conversation about him. I really do. I think that took him That's from, it. again, admittedly cartoonish villain. And I'm not somebody who lines up on, you know, throw the, take the cheaters out of the Hall of Fame, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But from cartoonish villain to conflicted guy mm-hmm. trying to find his way in the world, trying to discover himself, dad, right? There's some family scenes in there. Sure. And made him palatable, if that's the right word again, Yeah, to networks. I think that's true. I think that certainly, I mean, that, that, that certainly swayed a lot of people who were in the position of making those decisions. Although I don't think it's fair to like totally throw the PED stuff just like out with the bathwater. I mean, I think that, a lot of what we've seen in the time, but I mean, I think, you know, our culture has probably changed some in the time between he was, when he was, you know, got suspended and, and, and now, but I also think there's a difference in sort of the tastemakers of the genres, right? I mean, it's like, I'm not quite sure how much the average person cares about PEDs, except when it's being told, unless, unless they're being sort of tisked at by the by by you know ancient sports writers you know and what's funny is i would i would say i would normally say the same thing and i probably still say the same thing and yet when robinson cano got busted the other day yeah for peds every article was about whether he was going to make the hall of fame or not yeah and i'm like oh wow we're still we're still doing this yeah we're still doing this we're still upset you know, it's like it's just I just don't I mean, it, it's just kind of amazing. I, I, th- I actually thought we had moved on. I kinda. think I, th- I think that I think that PEDs matter a lot more when when the subject in question is sort of distant and alien. And that can be that could be defined any number of ways. But I think it's, you know, not particularly uh, difficult to look at the fact that, like, you know, no one I mean, that Ryan Braun took a lot less heat than. Cano or whoever else, you know, I mean, that when, when he tested to understand that, like, if someone's relatable and always out in front of the camera, then they probably, then, it, then it's a lot easier to let bygones be bygones. And I think that that's what Alex Rodriguez was certainly like one of the, was like from, an, from another planet for most of his career, not just in terms of being a Superman at the plate, but in terms of being an unrelatable figure. Utterly. And, Utterly unrelatable. And that putting him in front of the camera sort of immediately mends all wounds or, you know, heals all wounds because he is he's immediately relatable. But I think that we I think understand right. him as a human being. Yeah. The Moringer pick the Moringer piece, I think, did that. Although I think it's, you know, rereading it this weekend, it, it was sort of surprising how sort of difficult the piece was at times. Just because it's there's no there's no quotes, you know, it's the it's a it was a hard piece to write and a really good, a really well executed version of that piece. But it's not. But that wasn't the same as I mean, that it didn't it didn't it sort of like expressed that he was human and fallible and trying to reach a deeper understanding of himself. But it didn't feel like a direct window into his soul in the way that a that a more that a piece with quotes or a, or, a you know, a, I don't know if we could have gotten that piece. Yeah, but it, but you had to you had that was step one for sure. I think it goes to what you say about just putting it in front of a camera, just letting a journalist observe him. Uh huh. You know, it has the same effect. Sure, it just looks like 
a fairly normal person instead of a person just cut off from It's the little stuff that had the most power. You're right. The stuff with the kids, the stuff where where his his disposition changed on a dime. Mm-hmm. Him going to college, right? And sitting in the back of those classes. Hiding, trying to hide in the back, pull, pulling his hood down low or whatever. I mean, that it was pretty, but then that in one scene and then another scene, he's goes back to his old high school where he couldn't get on the baseball team and he takes batting practice and just starts cranking home runs while people just sort of watch him in awe. I think that there was a really interesting running thread throughout the piece where the distinction between people lo- looking at him in awe and gawking at him was very blurry at times. And Moringer did a good job of trying to of of d- differentiating between the two, but it was always people staring at him. Mm-hmm. Sure. And and I think that um, that sort of you feel more sorry for him in both instances about that than almost anything else, you know. Yeah, and so many things to untangle with a Rod too, because it's the PDs is a big one, but the other one was like you know when he got that two hundred fifty million dollar contract with the Texas Rangers, mm-hmm. there was a sense, and I remember going through Nexus a couple of years and looking, it was like the ball players are going to bankrupt the owners. I mean that was an actual thing in the sports pages. Oh baseball yeah, baseball cannot survive the greedy baseball players. Well, I mean, Scott Boris took a lot of the flack for his players, but yes, so, that was definitely the vibe at the time. And that was like, you know, that that was. I mean, now we just laugh. I mean, if anybody said that in any sport, right? Well, the Rangers did trade a Rod for financial reasons. Yeah, totally. But it's not like, but that's they. You know, it's not like they, they willingly signed him to contract, and it's like, okay, you know, the guy's other businesses went bad, the owners of the business went bad. Yeah. Oh, all right. And now it's just like when that happens, you know, when somebody signed. One of the most amazing things in the press in, in my lifetime, sports press, has been the end of the overpaid athlete. Yeah. Thing, right. People still get mad about Tristan Thompson. Like you didn't allocate your resources in the right way. Yeah. You shouldn't assign him. You should assign somebody else or something like that. Yeah. But it's very rarely like that person doesn't deserve to make that much money because this is a game, mm-hmm. which was still very much in force during early in the early parts, at least of A-Rod's Five career. years ago, it felt like. It was incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing his power to at ESPN. So he doesn't – ESPN has – couple of internal candidates they were looking at for Sunday Night Baseball, uh-huh. which is their big baseball franchise. He brings Matt Vaskersian from Fox, who has the shares an agent with, to be the play-by-play man, even mm-hmm. though Vaskersian is not a guy at ESPN, which is kind of amazing at the time. I've heard from people at Fox that they did not feel this this <laughs> this is ideal at all, to essentially take a guy they discovered, that John Entz, who's, a, uh, who's an executive at Fox, pointed at and said, this could be... This guy could be something when none of the other networks wanted to take a chance. And now they're sharing him with the world, right? Mm -hmm. He's on television every week, not just a special thing that happens at ESPN in the postseason. He's on television every week and developing other projects at ESPN as well. The other thing I was thinking with him is that there is just this general thing of the healing power of television. Yes. In sports television, that what made you a jerk in the quote unquote real world is an asset on TV, right? You have a high opinion of yourself and you're critical of others and kind of, you know, withering in your criticism of others. That makes you good on TV. Yeah. TV doesn't like nice person. Mm -hmm. TV likes person who has really clear, smart judgments, right? This is why Charles Barkley works on television, right? I mean, Charles was already always a great quote and all that stuff, but like, like you want the person who's kind of a dick. Shaq too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that that's what, and so it's always so funny to me because people will see them in the one context, like, oh, that guy's terrible. That guy's so full of himself. And they come to television like, oh, he's great. Yeah. Because he, because by being full of yourself, you think you can pass judgment on everybody else. Sure. That's just, and Simmons has always been a proponent of Kobe Bryant taking that road too. The, uh, I think he fits those criteria from everything that we know. Yeah, I mean, it's true. There's a certain sort of player who's sort of like 
more of a searcher, you know, and that's and those are the players that you'd like to have on a podcast. Or, yes. or, or or the players that you'd like to be writing for you because they're thoughtful and they can get to that third graph or whatever, you know? Um, but yeah, I think you're right. I think that A-Rod is, I think that it takes someone, I mean, and, and as much as much comp, as confidence was in question um, through that ESPN piece and, and various points in his career, at his core, it's not, right? The, he's still, there's not a question when the ball is, when a 98 mile per hour ball is coming down, is coming towards you. He knows how to hit it out of the park. Right, he, better than anybody else, and it's that same sort of speed and recognition, I think, that allows him to be and confidence that allows him to to be a perfect, you know, per, a perfect on air personality. Yeah, the the amazing test, by the way, for this, the healing power of television would be <laughs> would have been if Jay Cutler had actually done a season of Fox last year. Yeah. Could have could America have liked Jay Cutler under any no. circumstance? No. Do you think do you think this Matt Vaskersian will be healed from all of the XFL baggage by the end of this too? <laughs> I forgot he was a voice of the <laughs> of the XFL. What a career! A um, couple other examples of this, by the way. John Gruden was one. You know, by the end of his time in Tampa Bay, reporters yeah. really hated him, and he was seen as being kind of withholding and not great with the press. Then he comes to ESPN, and the the rap on him is these too nice. Yeah, on air. Sure, that he was that he was hyping everybody. Yep, which is like the opposite of the problem in Tampa Bay. And I even think somebody like Tony Romo, his characteristics got changed around. People in Dallas would say, "Oh, we don't like Tony Romo because he's not locked in enough. He's not like Peyton Manning and Tom Brady, where he's just all about football." Uh-huh. And he comes on television, and he's the ultimate like fan, and this is awesome, and I I'm so excited to be here, and everybody loves it. Yeah, the same characteristics they were mad about. Yeah, now everybody loves it. It's like, oh, so great to see somebody with enthusiasm and fresh eyes. And all that stuff, it just gets flipped completely around. It's very funny. That's funny. And man, and now man, I mean, you know, there have been lots of rumors that that Fox was courting Manning for you know, in its yeah. NFL game and stuff like that. He was the locked in one. Although I guess his TV reel or all the uh, commercial work, all the commercials that he did over the years, like yeah. that's his audition tape. Yeah, and I think that I think that is with everybody. I mean, maybe Romo's was direct TV. True, yeah, but you're right with man, Manning is do, doing those commercials. I have I have no doubt. That network that for network executives, that's just as important as anything else. They want you to come in and do a tryout, but really they see you on the commercial like that guy's funny. That yeah. guy's funny when he's when he's selling the when he's doing the cut that meat. That, that guy's got a good sense of humor. Yeah, and you know, there's a lot of people of that level. You know, probably wouldn't be that eager to do audition. You know, wouldn't be, they wouldn't <laughs> right. be that eager to work out. You just got to like see what they've done before. Um, but to A Rod specifically, like I don't remember any commercials during his heyday or whatever that really made me think he was a human or relatable or interesting person to watch. He was always just a robot. No, and it's, by the way, the great experiment would be if we threw Derek Jeter in one booth and yeah. A Rod in the other booth. Jeter, beloved in New York, A Rod basically hated mm-hmm. and saw who fared better on with with media Twitter on the air. Yeah, I think it would be A Rod. Yeah, I and think that's so. fascinating because I think Jeets would be just like just like yeah, this is so boring. He's not saying anything. This is too mm-hmm. nice. I do think that there's a little bit of that searcher aspect, though, to A-Rod as well as just being the kind of alpha, being the superstar, because you see that in in the ESPN piece and and throughout that he's trying to learn how to be a better businessman, trying to figure out all the, you know, he's he's training with Barry Bonds because Bonds was so good in the kind of twilight of his career. You know, he's he's it's always questions with him. He only communicates in terms of questions to try to figure out answers. And he certainly the put on for him is being a smiling television personality, right? That is the great, that is the, the, (laughs) the great put over of this whole thing. And I think that to a certain extent, that's what makes us, that's what makes us love him is that he is that you have to do things in a certain way. You have to strike that comfortable tone in your audience, you know? Right. You got to be, 
You got to have that little Joe, that Joe Buck baritone and that Troy Eggman twang to make people really feel like they're watching football, you, you know? And, and You're absolutely right, David. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I think that, a- I think that A-Rod, you know, I think that there's a, an endless amount of, 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 uh, fun that can be had when someone like, you know, Jeter or somebody else who's just, or, or Romo, who's just very comfortable in there is doing that thing. But A-Rod sort of impersonating a, a, a studio guy, but all, or a, you know, color guy, and but then also being as incisive as he is, yeah. is a sort of perfect combo. All right, that's the Press Box for this week. Thanks, as always, to our Uber producer, Jim Cunningham. <laughs> Next week, David, more hot takes on the entire media landscape. See you, buddy. See you later, man. to the point that you were spending a lot of time not living your own life is harmful. (laughs) (laughs) Too late, says America.